The time is 10.14, and the Pan household has just settled into their beds and are beginning to drift off to sleep. Then, out of nowhere, they're awoken by a loud noise downstairs, followed by heavy footsteps. Before they're even able to get out of bed, three masked men armed with guns run up the stairs yelling for the family to get out of their beds and give them all their money. So having heard about robberies like this on the news, the Pans complied, and they gave the men everything they could find. But instead of turning to leave, the men got more aggressive and started to give sinister demands. What had seemed to just be a robbery was turning into something much more deadly. And only a few minutes later, neighbors were awoken to the sound of multiple gunshots. As the news broke the next day, rumors began to spread. Had this poor family been randomly attacked? Or had they got themselves wrapped up in something dangerous? What the police ended up uncovering was so shocking, the media is still talking about it to this day. So if you want to hear the full story of the attack and the shocking truth the police uncovered, make sure you stick around until the end of today's episode. Welcome to the Truly Terrifying Show. If you're a fan of crime, killers, and mystery, then this is the spot for you. I upload on YouTube and all podcast directories, and I'm also active on Instagram and TikTok. I am a full-time university student and put countless hours into every episode, so if you enjoy it, please like and subscribe. Thanks again for watching, and let's get straight into today's episode. In 1979, two political refugees named Han and Bic moved to Toronto, Canada to start a new life. Fleeing Vietnam was a huge deal for the Pans. They had both worked extremely hard to build a comfortable life back home. So not only were they leaving their families behind, they were also leaving behind careers they had worked their entire lives towards. Nonetheless, the two of them arrived in Canada excited to face the new challenge. In the following years, the two of them managed to find work at an auto parts factory called Magna International. And even though the job would be considered both low-paying and grueling, the Pans made the most of it and were quickly able to save up enough money to buy a small home. After seven years in Canada, the Pans gave birth to their first child, who was a beautiful baby girl they named Jennifer. At first, having a baby seemed like it would make their lives much more expensive and difficult. But because the two of them were so incredibly hardworking, they managed to juggle working extra hours at the factory and raising this child. The two of them vowed that they would do anything in their power to give their daughter the best life they possibly could. And instead of making their lives more difficult, Jennifer was actually the best thing that had ever happened to them. They'd quickly realized that coming home to a child gave their life so much more purpose. So only three years later, Bic gave birth to another child, a baby boy they named Felix. Over the following years, Han and Bic were able to make enough money to continue affording their house, and they were able to provide the best lives they possibly could for their children. Once Jennifer turned four, she was put in piano and figure skating lessons, and although she was musically gifted, she hated the piano lessons. The figure skating, on the other hand, was a different story. From the second she stepped foot on the ice, she was hooked. And from there forward, she would tell everyone she met she would one day be a figure skating Olympic champion. By the time she started primary school, Jennifer was training for figure skating nearly every single day of the week. Worried this was going to affect her academics, Han made sure to set aside time for her to study outside of school. 
Miraculously, Han still managed to work long hours at the factory while driving her to school, piano, figure skating, and helping out with all of her homework afterwards. As a result, both Jennifer and Felix remained straight A students through grades 1 to 12. In this time, Jennifer had continued training extremely hard for figure skating and had become one of the best in the city. It was starting to look like maybe she would be an Olympic champion. But in grade 11, Jennifer took a fall in practice, tearing a ligament in her knee. And even after a difficult recovery process, she realized she would never be the skater she once was. Luckily, shortly after this realization, Jennifer got accepted to pharmacology at the University of Toronto and began to get excited about moving away to go to school. At the same time, Han and Bick were now making enough money to comfortably afford a bigger house for their family. Additionally, they had both bought themselves nice cars, Han a Mercedes C-Class and Bick a Lexus ES300, and they had managed to accumulate over $200,000 in savings. It was clear the Pan family was a prime example of an immigrant success story. When Jennifer started school, she made friends quickly, and luckily for her parents, she would still come home every single weekend to stay with them. To pay her rent, she got a part-time job working at the hospital with sick children. In the years that followed, this arrangement worked perfectly. Jennifer was happily able to balance her family and her alone time, and her parents were overjoyed by the amazing daughter they had raised. That brings us to November 8th, 2010. Felix was staying at a friend's house that night, so after a nice dinner with her parents, Jennifer went up to bed. At 10.14pm, the operator at the Markham police station picked up the phone to screaming. The following is a recording of the 911 call. Only a few minutes later, police arrived on the scene, and standing on the driveway of 240 Helen Ave were two men. The first was the Pan's neighbor, Peter Chung, and standing next to him was Han, who was drenched in blood and screaming out in pain. As the officers got closer, they could clearly tell Han had been shot several times, but before they could help him, he waved them aside, telling them in broken English that his wife and daughter needed their help. When police entered the house, it was like walking into a scene straight out of a horror movie. The first thing they noticed was screaming. Somewhere deep inside the house, a female voice was wailing. The police called out, asking if everyone was alright, and the screaming cut off abruptly. I'm upstairs, and I'm okay, said a timid voice. So they followed the voice, noticing a trail of blood leading straight towards it. But before they could go up the stairs, 
it took an abrupt turn going towards the basement. After some consideration, the officers continued up the stairs, and once they got to the top, they found a teenage girl tied up in the master bedroom. Unlike the rest of the house that had appeared clean, the master bedroom was a mess. All of the drawers had been emptied and the mattress had been flipped over. The police untied Jennifer and asked her if she knew if the assailants were still in the house. I'm not sure, she said. They might be in the basement. Both of the men stopped and looked up at each other. They whispered for Jennifer to be quiet and stay where she was before turning and making their way back down the stairs. Both men cautiously descended into the basement with their guns drawn, but nothing could have prepared them for what they were about to see. Once they were at the bottom of the stairs, they clicked on the light. The basement was very small, roughly 30 feet by 30 feet, and it was clear that the gunmen were no longer down there. But in the middle of the room, somebody was laying on the floor. Surrounding them, blood spattered the couches, walls, and furniture, and a dark pool had encircled the body. The body, who is later identified as Bic Pan, was laying face down with a towel covering her head. For some odd reason, her feet and legs were covered in water and were pale and discolored. And when the officers finally ripped off the towel, they noticed gunshot wounds lining the poor woman's back and neck. She had no pulse. One of the officers stayed at the scene to meet with the coroner, while the deputy, Officer Brian, accompanied Jennifer in an ambulance to take her to the hospital. What just happened, he thought as they watched the police lights disappear behind them. Do you think my parents are going to be alright, asked Jennifer, holding back tears. Brian hesitated for a moment before deciding to tell her the truth about her mother. But before he did, he made sure to ask her to tell him everything she remembered about the night. All she remembered was that there were three men in the house. One was really small, and one had dreadlocks. But aside from that, it was way too dark to see, so she didn't get a good glimpse of them. Once they arrived at the hospital, the doctors had already assessed all of Han's injuries. He had been shot several times and had lost a ton of blood. So on the way to the hospital, he had lost consciousness. The doctor said he was lucky to even be alive. Just four hours after seeing her comatose dad in the hospital, police brought Jennifer Pan down to the police station for an interview. Detective Slade sat Jennifer down and told her they were only there to help and all they wanted was the truth. But even with his calm demeanor and some anxiety pills that Jennifer had been given, she was noticeably anxious and fidgety, and after some apprehension, Jennifer swore to tell the truth, so Detective Slade began asking her questions about the night. But the second he brought up her mother, Jennifer instantly broke down, burying her head in her hands and weeping uncontrollably. So instead of continuing, he grabbed her a tissue and let her sob for a few more minutes, before she finally raised her head and said she was ready to continue with the investigation. That's when Detective Slade noticed something interesting. Jennifer had put the tissue he'd given her back on the table, and despite her sobbing a few moments earlier, it was completely dry. So Detective Slade decided to put on the pressure again and ask her more questions. I, I upstairs in my room, called it a night with the TV on, um, talking on the phone with a friend of mine, and then... Uh, Shortly after, my mom came home, I believe that was around 9.30 or so, she was rummaging downstairs, I didn't 
think anything of it. Suddenly, I just heard my mom calling for my dad to come down. And that's when I lowered the volume on my TV. And I could hear the voices weren't any voices I was very familiar with. And so I was scared and I couldn't move. I just sat in my room for a while. And then I thought I heard them all let, like leave the top floor and I peered out of my bedroom door. And a guy was there and he came at me and had string in his hands and tied my arms back and said, I have a gun behind your back. Do what I say. If you do what I say, then no one will get hurt. Where is the money? Show me where your money is. I um, I have still a few, a bit of money put aside from when I was waitressing cash. So I showed him where it was and he took it and put it in his pocket, I think. And then that's where they, they pushed me to my parents' room and asked me where the money was there and I didn't really know. So they kind of like, one was right beside me blocking my way to the door while the other ones turned over the bed to find some more cash in my mom's bedside table, in which then they dragged me down the stairs and made me kneel at the bottom, telling me to face down on the floor while the other guy had a gun behind my head and asked my mom where her purse was. My mom kept trying to get up and they kept telling her to sit down and so I didn't want her to get hurt so I told her mom to sit down. They were trying to find her wallet but she, her English thinker, so she kept saying purse. They kept pushing her down onto the chair. Take your time. Take your time. All this is very important, so take your time. They kept all the lights off on the main floor. The only time there was light was when they opened the fridge door to see if they could find where my mom's purse was. At that point, I saw three figures of men. Like the one I could see the most clearly, he had a hoodie on, and I believe he had a bandana of some sort covering from like his lower, uh, under his eyes down. And then for some reason, I think one of the, the gentlemen asked my father if he had money in his wallet and where his wallet was. So they took me, because I was next to the stairwell, they took me up the stairs to sh show them where my father's wallet was, but I'm I didn't know. They had turned the room upside down. I didn't know where his pants were at that time. And then after they had gotten that, they had taken me and they tied me to the top of the banister. Just with one string, I could still move. But I was afraid to because the one guy just had that gun. Just Next thing I know, I think I heard my parents going down the stairs. And my mom was asking them for me to come with them. They wouldn't let me come with them. After they said, the last thing I heard them say was, You lied. You lied to us. You lied to us. And then I heard two pops. My mom screamed. I yelled out for her. And a couple more pops. And I think I heard my mom say, or moan, or something and then they did one more before they left and then one of the guys said we have to go now it's been too long and then they ran out the door and I think once they were out the door I heard my dad go up the stairs and at that point I had my phone in my in my on me behind me 
that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So when I when I when they when I thought that they had heard them all leave and my dad ran up the stairs, I whipped up the phone and I called 911. But I, I still hadn't heard anything from my mom, and all I could hear was my dad running on the street, moaning and making sounds. After that, Detective Slade asked a couple more questions and then let Jennifer leave. At this point, police were stuck. And with hands still in a coma, Jennifer was the only witness they had. So only two days later, they decided to call Jennifer back in, hoping there might be something they missed that would help them solve the murder. During the second interview, the story remained almost completely the same, and she still couldn't hold back her emotions. But just as Detective Slade was going to send her on her way, he thought back to that tissue, and he thought, maybe I should press one more time and see what I get. So that's what he did. Like you didn't hear, you didn't hear a doorbell, you didn't hear a door knock, you didn't hear a door kicked in, you didn't. I hear... was, I said I was watching no, TV on the phone. I, I don't know how. That back and back and forth, we don't know how. So, somehow they got into your house by getting through your mom down on the lower level, right? Because she's the only one who's down she there. She's the only one down there. So, it's very confusing. Generally, random events are not, in most cases, random. There's a rhyme or reason why they've come to your house. But from what you've told me inside the house, the only thing that you hear them saying to you is they're looking for money. They're not looking for a specific quantity of money? No. So you're telling me that you you had no involvement in what happened, meaning not saying how the outcome came, but you you had no involvement in, in any type of illegal activity that would have drawn you or the attention of you to have bad people come to your house looking for large sums of money. You're not involved in this any which way. Because the question obviously stands, Jennifer, is you're upstairs and they're downstairs. No. Right? So it's a natural concern when why would they leave you alone? Why would they not do the same to you? And you can't answer that question? The only thing I can say is he said I cooperated, the, but I asked him to take me. The number one guy? Now. The number one guy said you cooperated? Okay. Who's to say this whole thing isn't a lie? That what you're telling me is a lie? Because if you are lying, it's the most cold-blooded thing that I've ever oh faced God. in my life. There is nothing that you've said to me today is a lie. No interaction, no belief, no, you didn't have anything to do with this thing at all, whatsoever. No. You don't engage in illegal activity? No. Because you know that it'll be very easy, it, it will be a very easy thing to discredit you on, right? We're, we're in the process of trying to add credibility to what you tell us, and that's through the process of asking people and doing whatever. Through that same process, it will be very easy to find the flaws in what you've said, which again then turns the focus back to you. Okay. I don't it's a natural progress. It's a natural thing that investigators do. We eliminate people, or we draw our attention to them. It's a natural uh, thing. It's a. It's not brain surgery. Okay. <sighs> How are you feeling? Sorry, you really scared me. Did I? What did I scare you about? Sit down. Sit down and, and t take a load off. Tell me how. Tell me how you're feeling, and how I scared you. I don't want you walking away from here thinking I'm evil. I want you to walking around from here thinking that 
this guy is helping investigate my mom's murder and he's going to turn over every stone possible to make sure that we catch the people who do that that's what i want you feeling so i don't want you walking away from here thinking that i'm a i'm i scared you or i'm i'm a bad man sometimes we have to ask very very difficult questions but it's my job okay you're our only link you're it until your dad regains his back and being able to be, be be spoken to right now you're our only link to this case so we're we may rely on you heavily on until we can speak to your father okay so don't be afraid if you've told the truth the last thing you should be afraid of is is anything if you've told the truth and you've been truthful through this whole process then you're helping you're doing your part okay and don't be afraid of me i'm just afraid because you know, like, I know everything is just all pointing negatively right now, and I, I don't understand why. I'm just, I feel that, like, the way you're, you're speaking to me, it's kind of like, I know you said that you had to say those things, but it's, yeah. it's here, and I've already said it to the special victims yesterday, but there's, like, ideas in my head, Yeah. and I'm afraid to say it out loud, but ideas about speculation of what happened or how it happened unfortunately uh, at times some of us have to point the finger seem like we're pointing the finger and it really is just to provoke you to see what you're going to do how you're going to respond okay so it's only a question and it ha it's been answered and if you've been truthful okay you have nothing to fear absolutely nothing okay <laughs> The interrogation ended abruptly there, leaving detectives with a strange feeling. Although there was no physical proof linking Jennifer to the tech, they knew she was hiding something. So they set up a team to surveil her at all times. It didn't turn up much, but one thing they did notice, at her mom's funeral, Jennifer was seen staring at the ground the entire time and not shedding a single tear. Only a few days after the funeral, when it was starting to look like the case may go unsolved, police got a call that would change everything. Somebody had reached out with evidence that would flip the case on its head. So a team of detectives went to meet with the informant and quickly learned that they were legit. They gave the police information that would leave them straight to their prime suspect. After the meeting, detectives have to work fast. In the next 48 hours, they managed to gather damning evidence, and more shockingly, they were able to make an arrest and get a confession out of the prime suspect. So who was this informant, and what had they said? Thank you so much to everyone still watching. If you're enjoying it, please like, subscribe, and give the podcast a 5-star rating. I'm a full-time student, and I don't make any money off of YouTube or sponsorships, so seeing the positive feedback really keeps me going. Thanks again. Back at the hospital, Jennifer's father, Han, had miraculously awoken from his coma. More surprisingly, he appeared to have complete brain function, which was something the doctor said was nearly impossible. But before doctors were able to inform Jennifer that her dad had woken up, Han had a special request. Instead of seeing Jennifer, he asked to set up a secret meeting with police. Once in front of detectives, Han told them his side of the story, and when he was done, detectives left knowing exactly how to find the attackers. Over the next couple days, they were able to piece together the rest of the story, which led to a confession and subsequent arrests. 
The following is what actually happened to the Pan family. Instead of the model family the Pans had seemed to be, it turns out not everything was perfect. Because Bick and Han had worked so hard for their lives in Canada, they expected their children to work as hard as they did to secure a good future. To maintain this level of success, Jennifer would come home from figure skating at 10pm and do piano and homework until midnight. As expected, this amount of pressure takes a toll on a kid, especially at that age. The pressure was so bad that by grade 6, Jennifer had begun to occasionally harm herself to cope with it. When she graduated grade 8, Jennifer expected to be named valedictorian but it was given to one of her classmates who narrowly beat her. Having put in so much time and effort, this blow crushed her motivation and self-confidence, and by grade 9, her grades had dropped from high 90s to low 70s. Jennifer knew that if her parents found out she would be grounded forever, so she forged her signature, replacing all of her B's and C's with A's. Unfortunately, her grades never went up again, and she was forced to forge her report cards for the remainder of high school. To make matters worse, her parents continued to apply relentless pressure. In addition to constant training and studying, she wasn't allowed to go to dances or parties, have boyfriends, or even go to a sleepover at a friend's house. Despite this, in grade 11, she met a boy named Daniel Wong who was a year older than her. And only a couple months after meeting, they started to date in secret. Even though she had been faking her report card to her parents, the universities she started applying for, they saw the real thing. And when Jennifer failed calculus in grade 12, the only school that was considering her rejected her application. Instead of telling her parents the truth, Jennifer told them that she had got accepted and had earned a scholarship to pay for tuition. As a congratulations, Han bought her a brand new laptop only a couple days later. Once school began, Jennifer bought fake bio and physics textbooks, and even bought supplies. During the days, she would take public transport downtown where her parents thought she was going to school. Instead, she would go to the public library where she would read her notebooks and take fake notes. After a while, she got bored of this, so she started taking shifts as a server at Eastside Mario's, and in her free time she would go visit Daniel at York University. After two full years of faking university, Jennifer told her parents that she got accepted into the pharmacology program at U of C. And then she somehow managed to convince them to let her stay at her friend's house during the week so that the commute would be easier to school. Unsurprisingly, she never moved in with that friend and instead moved in with Daniel who had recently started selling drugs. After two more years when graduation rolled around, Daniel and Jennifer hired someone to fake her transcripts putting all A's, and she told her parents that there weren't enough seats for them to come to the ceremony. At this point though, they had grown suspicious. Only a couple weeks earlier, Jennifer had told them that she had started a volunteering job at the hospital, and therefore would only be home every second weekend. They quickly noticed she didn't have a uniform or keycard for the job, so one day after dropping her off at the hospital, Bick followed her inside. When Jennifer noticed, she ran and never came home. This prompted Bick to call the friend that Jen had been staying with, who told her that she had been living with David all along. When Jennifer finally came home a couple days later, Han confronted her. And after a heated argument, she confessed, 
telling him that she had never worked at the hospital, never gone to U of T, and had been staying with David all along. She did fail to tell him that she had never graduated high school and had never gotten accepted into university in the first place. Both of her parents were heartbroken. Han told her to leave and never come back, but Bic convinced them otherwise, so she stayed. They took away her phone and computer for two weeks and made her show them all of her messages without warning. She wasn't allowed to see Daniel, and they tracked her odometer to make sure she didn't. Jennifer couldn't stand it. So in spring of 2010, Jennifer and David began devising a plan that would solve all of their problems. Using a burner phone, the two of them set up a plan to hire somebody to kill her parents. In doing so, she could collect a $500,000 life insurance policy, and the two of them could live happily ever after. David connected Jennifer with a man he called Homeboy, who was actually Lenford Crawford and he told Jennifer that he could do the job for $10,000. She accepted the offer and they spent the following weeks finding a perfect day and developing a plan. On November 8th, Homeboy texted Jennifer it was game on. That night, once her parents had gone to bed, Jennifer snuck down and unlocked the front door. At 10.02, she flicked on and off the light upstairs, signaling that it was time which prompted the three men to enter the house armed with guns. The intruders ran upstairs, pulling Han and Bick out of bed and tying them up. But before being brought downstairs where they'd be shot multiple times, Han noticed something strange that would end up solving the entire case. In the corner of the room, Jennifer had been chatting with one of the attackers as if they were her friend. This was all the evidence detectives needed to put her away forever. But to make sure she never got away with it, they needed a confession. So they brought her in for one last interview where they applied tons of pressure and eventually made her crack. She confessed to everything. Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, David Milvaganum, Eric Carty, and Lenford Crawford were all charged with first-degree murder and attempted murder, resulting in two life sentences each. So here's my question to you. Do you think Jennifer alone is to blame for the murder? Or is Han and Bick's parenting style the true culprit? Let me know in the comments. Thank you guys so much for watching. If you like it and want to watch more, check out one of these other videos. If you've already seen them all, make sure to hit the bell so you don't miss my next upload. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.